Development Goal Number 16, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions. Um, we have a report uh, that we're also rolling out as part of this uh, called rule of, The Rule of Law, a Critical Building Block for Good Governance and Economic Growth. So we've been uh, very fortunate uh, that Chevron's uh, worked with us on doing a series on each of the sustainable development goals. Now, there are many folks who, um, what has shocked me is that the sustainable development goals are not very well known in Washington. I think if you follow these issues, you, you know about them, but I would argue that there are only a, maybe a couple dozen members of Congress that know what the Sustainable Development Goals actually are. I can guarantee you almost none of them can tell you what number 7 is or number 16 is or the 169 sub-indicators, like which one is 138, or I think you, you get where I'm trying to go with this. But what has shocked me has been the incredible uptake in interest from global multinationals in these SDGs. So many company, global companies, I'd say the best global companies in the world, look at the problems in the world and measure their progress and the contributions they make in the world through the Sustainable Development Goals matrix or lens. It's, uh, it's very, very interesting. So if you go look at anyone's corporate social responsibility report around the SDGs, you'll see um, that many companies now measure using those, those color, you know, those logos, the circular logos and the colors, et cetera. So that, that's been particularly interesting and, 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 um, and I think an, amazing, an interesting change and a reflection of sort of the, the collective action process that went into getting people to kind of have some ownership of the sustainable development goals. And like I said, I think it's probably a lot. 17 is a lot and 169 sub-indicators is a lot. Um, but I would say that what has, there has been a significant uptake as a result of that. So given all that, the Sustainable Development Goal number 16, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions, um, aims to promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, inclusive institutions at all levels. They don't use the word democracy in here, but it's sort of, it's kind of hiding in plain sight, if you ask me. There's sort of a finger on the scale of democratic governance. Um, I also think just with sort of the recent, uh, what has happened most recently in Hong Kong, I think the issue of rule of law has been at the, on the front page of the newspaper. I would argue that what's happened in Hong Kong and sort of China's um, and, and the Hong Kong government's uh, pullback from sort of over, overreaching, if I can put it that way, is a function also not just of Hong Kong but of Taiwan. Taiwan has elections sometime in the next uh, next few months, and the uh, less the and, and the person who was the, 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 the candidate that wasn't doing as well. Um, but is sort of presenting a platform saying, I'll be stronger against China, um, has seen her poll numbers jump something like 10 points as a result of sort of what's been happening in Hong Kong. And so I think the Chinese government's been looking at what's happening in Taiwan, saying, if I overreach in Hong Kong, I'm going to see some sort of a reaction in Taiwan in addition to what may happen in the mainland. So issues of rule of law are on the front page of the newspaper. I think they matter in this country. They matter around the world. And I think we're going to talk about what is rule of law and also the need for a demand for rule of law that actually countries, actually civil societies and various stakeholders have to ask or demand rule of law for it to happen. And I think we need to have a conversation about what does rule of law actually mean because I think um, in some in some context that I'm not sure it's a loaded term, but perhaps it's got some it's got some some top things you need to kind of unpack or sort of have some nuance about. So I'm going to um, start with my friend uh, Matt Murray, who's an adjunct professor 
of International Public Affairs at Columbia University at SEPA, but he also has wears a number of other interesting hats and he's had some interesting past lives. So Matt, I'm going to kick it off to you first, please. Dan, thank you very much. And I want to um, thank you in particular for devoting um, attention to the rule of law as a discrete goal in building um, just societies that, that provide access to uh, economic opportunity, protection of human rights, and um, a whole list of um, deliverables that come under rule of law that are not necessarily uh, contemplated as priorities when you're talking about building democracy. So the, the exercise of building democracy and building democratic institutions um, has a number of, uh, let's say, general metrics, including how do you do elections, do you have political competition, and, and other um, definitional goals that do not always get to a rule of law as a discrete set of goals. And why is this important? Because um, countries can take steps towards building democracy, they can take steps towards generating uh, economic growth and competition without investing in a rule of law, without creating um, a, a, what, is, what the, um, legal scholars call a thick rule of law. Ever since the term was invented in the 19th century by a famous international lawyer called Inner, uh, Albert Van Dyche, um, the, the, there has been a common understanding that what a rule of law means, uh, in essence, is that it, it, it is meant to um, hold the state and its rulers and its mid-level officials accountable uh, to the people. Uh, and that is the essence of a rule of law. Uh, a thick rule of law is a rule of law that um, approaches that question with some degree of uh, normative force with some moral authority, whether it's from natural law or from religion or for some, from some other philosophical basis. A thin rule of law is, is, um, looks like a rule of law because it, it, there's legislation, there's courts, there's some predictability, there's some transparency, but there may not be a, a moral authority that, that, or a normative set of uh, rules that goes with it. And so, um, uh, what we, what we, Dan is right to point out that terminology is important because when we're advocating for a rule of law, we have to be clear about what we mean and we have to find terminology that speaks to people universally. Um, we have to find a way of talking really about justice uh, in different parts of the world. Um, I'm going to take my uh, time this morning to talk about how the rule of law progress, such as it is, and it is meaningful, and it has uh, taken on new force, and it has new champions, including multinational corporations, as Dan mentions. I'm going to take uh, a moment and, and discuss how, nevertheless, this effort to create an international uh, normative basis for justice is under severe challenge right now for three specific reasons. The first is you can't dis divorce a discussion about the rule of law from what I call free rider globalization. Uh, there are a number of countries in the world that are, are participating profitably, um, forcefully, and successfully in the rules-based trading system without having created a rule of law at home, without providing 
protection of basic proper, private property, and human rights at home. And so they are, um, they are uh, growing in um, their economic power, they're growing in their political presence, and yet they are not committed to um, basic protections uh, particularly those w that would be driven by some moral or normative basis at home. And China and Russia are, are salient examples, but there are several others. Uh, the second um, factor that you, can't, uh, you cannot discuss the rule of law without addressing is the rise of systemic corruption. Uh, what, we, what we have seen uh, as a sort of trend that accompanies globalization at this time uh, is the rise of uh, the ability of, of countries, including those that are free riders on globalization, to organize their entire governments around the delivery of enrichment to a small group of, uh, of officials. And this is sometimes called state-driven capitalism. It's sometimes called authoritarian kleptocracy. But what it all has in common is that we, we in the corruption sort of world, we've begun to uh, appreciate that it's not a case where there's an isolated example of a group of venal officials, you know, s engaging in state capture. Rather, entire governments and institutions and economies can be organized successfully to serve oligarchic interests. And once they've been established, they have to expand to survive. So they create crony networks that they um, try to uh, work with transnationally and to cement their power in surrounding countries. And so we've begun to see the export of crony capitalism. We've begun to see the export of a set of values which is inimical to the rule of law uh, around the world. And so this is all to say um, that the rule of law has become, it's, not, it's no longer a question of have you made progress in some technical metrics. It's no longer a question of whether you have, um, you know, adopted uh, an independent court system. It's a question of whether you are committed to, it's, a, it's become a strategic battleground, whether you, whether you want to have a rule of law in your country. And there are several examples um, arising out of the, these authoritarian countries where they are not only repressing institutions that would provide for the rule of law and basic protections at home, but they're also outsourcing the rule of law. And by that I mean to say they're trying to, once they've taken their assets, once they've secured their assets or stolen their assets within their own country, in order to protect them abroad, they not only move them to foreign countries and put them in foreign banks, but they also go to foreign courts to get them legitimized. Mm. And so this is a trend that we're seeing, it's underneath the radar, but it's becoming increasingly clear that our own courts, um, there's a great book on this, by the way, called Dictators Without Borders, and it's about how Central Asian elites, uh, while we have been um, you know, working very hard with the, these elites since the post-Soviet uh, Union to create de de democratic institutions, um, they've been working very hard to move their assets abroad, secure them abroad, 
and, and litigate, if necessary, to, uh, to win them abroad. And so um, uh, we have that. We have, that's happening also in the United States. There's a lot of recent examples of this happening in the United States. So I, you know, I'll stop there, Dan. I, I do think there are, um, in light of what I've just said, I think we have to think about the rule of law solution in three ways. I think the first thing we have to think of is what are new approaches to building rule of law constituencies in foreign yeah. countries. Uh, we've taken a, um, a kind of vertical approach to instituting the rule of law in foreign countries, I would say, where we hope that by establishing some measure of buy-in at the top, we're going to see reforms going vertically down. And what we need to do is work on creating the political consensus that's necessary to change behavior and build faith in justice and a rule of law on, on a more horizontal basis. So that's one set of um, solutions. The other is that the United States and other Western countries have to develop better defenses to um, becoming enablers of of kleptocracy, of money laundering, of the export of state capitalism. Uh, there's been a lot of good um, public work done and investigative journalism done on that in, in, in recent years. And then finally, we have to figure out how to take the rule of law on the offense. We have to figure out ways to um, strengthen the enforcement paradigm of the rule of law by cooperating with other Western countries on um, protecting the uh, uh, the rules-based trading system and requiring uh, bad for bad performers and free riders to institute the rule of law in their in their respective countries. Matt, Matt just let me just take advantage of your time just to talk about. Can you talk about you? You've got one of the other hats you wear is an, a hat in Afghanistan. Could you just right. give a one-minute infomercial for what you're doing in Afghan? What is being done in Afghanistan and what what your role is with that? So I work on the prevention side of the corruption ledger in Afghanistan for an organization called the Joint Independent uh, Monitoring and, and Evaluation Committee. And we report up to the president and we work on what um, uh, is a, uh, a special tool that's designed to help audit corruption risk inside government institutions and um, provide them with smart recommendations, which is to say, very specific, actionable, measurable uh, 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 recommendations that they can deliver in a time-bound uh, manner. And um, this is the work that you don't hear about. Often when you hear about corruption in Afghanistan, you hear about A, the problems, and B, you hear about the big scandals, and you hear about the punishment side. You hear about what's being done to investigate and punish. Uh, the prevention side is as important as any uh, of these endeavors to the future of the peace process with the Taliban because at some point if it gets to a, a, a level where there's a, a constitutional jurga and everybody's around the table they're going to have to define what they mean by justice and there's going to have to be some uh, modern tools available to reinforce that idea whether you represent the Taliban or some other constituency. Just one last thing, this issue of rule of law and use of the term. We were having a pregame and someone said, well, 
in some cultural context, that sounds like some sort of, I don't want to call it like you're imposing something, some system on me. What's your reaction to that? that well, I mean, I, I encountered this in Russia in, in starting in 1991 when I went there as an attorney. And I realized quickly that um, it, A, there was going to be resistance in Russia in particular. But B, there was also a risk that the rule of law could be turned into something else, which I came to call, call the law of rules, which is to say that um, you can create a rule for anything, and if there's no moral um, basis for your legal system, or legitimacy, and there's no legitimacy, and there's no more, most importantly, as Colin Powell used to say, a rule of law means a separation of powers. It means that there are three branches, and they are independent of each other, and they provide checks and balances. And so the Russians construed this, and this is just one case. There are many different cases. But the Russians construed uh, the rule of law differently, and they ended up creating, Putin even called it at one point, a dictatorship of the law. But really what he meant to say was that these are our rules, and we can change them and enforce them in any way we want to on any given day, and yet we can call it in some fashion, we can call it a rule of law. In, in international settings. Thanks a lot. Connor, uh, thanks for being here. You're um, with the, the Global Innovation Fund. Uh, you had a past life here at CSIS. You're an affiliate here. You're the author of this new report on the rule of law. So thanks, uh, and we're here in the context of SDG 16, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions, and in the context of you rolling out this new paper on rule of law. I, I welcome your thoughts. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks, Dan. It's always a pleasure to be back here at CSIS. Um, I think I want to focus my remarks a little bit on where the U.S. government fits into all of this and specifically where some of the recent, um, uh, some of the new initiatives that USAID has rolled out recently. Because um, I think Matt's provided a very good framework in terms of how we need to think about rule of law and how it, how it, what the landscape looks like right now. Um, Dan, I think one of the things, this, this conversation is structured around SDG 16, and I think you make a very good point that in Washington, the sustainable development goals are not often front of mind. Um, certainly, when you're talking to members of Congress about foreign assistance issues, um, SDG 16 or SDG 7 or 8 or 9 or whichever one you want to focus on, it does not spring to mind. Um, more often than not, they really do think about it in terms of sectors and um, congressional spending directives. So they may, may endorse the goals around the water SDG, but they're really thinking about it from the sort of broader way in which they've always approached funding water issues. Um, but what I do want to say is I think what's so important about SDG 16 is it really was an endorsement by the UN, by the broader international community, of how important these issues are, peace, justice, and security, um, rule of law. It does specifically talk about these. And for a long time, the UN system, multilateral development banks, many bilateral donors have struggled to really think about what they mean when they think about good governance or strong rule of law. It doesn't mean that they haven't worked on them. They have very often, um, and most of them have had a long experience implementing programs. Um, it just means that it's been obscured, I think, by some broader issues or by an overall desire to be seen as non-political, um, as not be, being seen as putting the finger on the scale of justice, so to speak, when it comes to good governance versus bad governance, um, or tackling what are often political and economic challenges 
um, when it comes to improving uh, governance or the rule of law. Um, all of that said, I think, you know, I think most people who follow USAID, who follow the US development system are aware that Administrator Mark Green has rolled out this new uh, framework, the Journey to Self-Reliance. Um, Journey to Self-Reliance has as its objective of ending foreign aid as we know it. Uh, it's a lofty goal. Um, it's one that we likely won't see uh, soon. Um, but I do think that it sets the standard right um, for U.S. foreign aid. Um, the two pillars of the journey to self-reliance are capacity and commitment. Um, and I would argue that if you're looking at the commitment of a government to transitioning away from foreign aid, and if you're looking at the capacity of a government to transition away from foreign aid, rule of law and good governance are critical to both of these. Um, and if we're not, I think the US government obviously has long worked on these issues, but journey to self-reliance in many ways, I think, raises this back up um, at a time when I think we really do need to think about how do we want to advance further? There's been great progress made on global poverty. There has been great progress made on a number of health indicators. There's been a great progress made on a number of other social development indicators. That doesn't mean that global poverty or extreme poverty has been solved completely. It's still very much out there. But it does mean that I think we need to think a lot more from a development perspective, from a donor perspective of where we're putting our people time and money. Um, and part of what I wanted to achieve with this paper is to really say this is, this is a very critical part of the overall equation and we need to focus more attention on it from a U.S. government perspective, from a development perspective. Um, I think one thing Matt said I think is, is really important is you know, how do we build rule of law constituencies in country? Um, and I would really argue that this is a role, or partially a role, for civil society to play. Um, I think one thing that you, we've talked a lot about is the closing of the civil society space, and that's happening. Um, and I don't think that we should underscore, I don't think that we should downplay the danger of that and what is happening abroad, but I would also say that when you do travel to a lot of these countries, civil society is a very vibrant space. Um, I was in Uganda this past summer looking at domestic resource mobilization, and I was shocked by the number of civil society groups that care about this issue. Um, and you have them coming at it from multiple angles, um, from a debt angle, from a budget accountability perspective, from are people paying their taxes. It's there, um, and there are immense challenges to civil society participation in a country like Uganda, but it's out there. And I think when we're looking at the journey to self-reliance, civil society needs to have a large role to play, certainly on this rule of law, good governance perspective. Um, they provide a critical accountability mechanism um, for the governments that we're working with uh, in developing countries. Um, I think the final thing I would say on journey self-reliance and the role of the U.S. government is I think we've heard today, we've talked quite a bit today earlier in the breakfast and with Matt's comments about the need for local demand. Um, local demand is there, um, but I also think we need to, we really do need to think about what that means. And I think 
you know, Dan touched on this a little bit, but there is often this perception that we're imposing a Western-led view of the rule of law or a Western set of legal standards or regulatory frameworks. And to be sure, many of these countries, as a result of colonialism, have civil, civil law or they have uh, English common law as the basis of their as the basis of their legal system. But I think for us, one thing we really need to think a little bit more about is rather than trying, I think oftentimes we seek to circumvent existing systems if they're too difficult to work with or they are perceived to be too corrupt or they're perceived to be too challenging. And I think we need to, we need to think a lot more from the donor side of how we're actually working within some of the existing systems to make them, to strengthen them, to improve them, to introduce the concepts and the ideas that are seen as best practice. Um, I'll take, provide a very brief example from my day job at the Global Innovation Fund. Um, chlorine, this is water and not related to rule of law. Chlorine tablets are often seen as a way to improve people's access to fresh water. Um, and there's been some success around that. There's been some good uptake, I think. About seven million people have adopted it under one of the programs that have been introduced out there. But what that ultimately was doing was it was simply circumventing the existing water systems. And rather than trying to improve the water systems or find ways to get people plugged into the grid to strengthen the existing utility systems, we were simply saying, well, it's too hard to do that. Let's just give people chlorine tablets and they can generate clean water from whichever source they're getting the water from. And I would argue the reason why you haven't seen that scaled up beyond 7 million people is impressive, but I would argue that you haven't seen the scale there because you're going around the existing systems in country. You're not trying to improve them. Um, and I think this is not just, this is not unique to water. It's not unique to other basic human needs, education, agriculture, et cetera. It, it, we're going to have to confront this within the rule of law as well. We're going to have to confront this as a, within the broader governance frameworks. And so I think I'd close by just saying we really do need to look at this from a local ownership from perspective, from a local demand perspective. And if we're simply trying to cut and paste a Western system, it's not going to work. Um, and I think it would be a real missed opportunity as we um, continue to make some changes in the U.S. system. You know, one of the, I've been thinking about this over the breakfast and, and looking at the report. There are a couple of things that come to mind. One is we ought to be using our aid dollars to enable a coal, broaden the coalition of the willing. But I also think there's lots of research and metrics that have been invested, whether it's the World Bank, we're going to hear from Valentina in a minute, or sort of the SDG-related metrics or other sorts of public goods of metrics uh, that our other NGOs have. And I think maybe one of the roles for AID or other bilateral donors is to kind of help bring, be glue money for some of that or to help use those metrics in ways that, to, have, to, to help force conversations uh, or give that, get that into the hands of, of civil society actors who can actually operationalize and mobilize it. Some of it's about glue money for bringing folks together and generating demand. Some of it's about informing and some of it's about making sure that these larger, these, all these public goods and metrics that are out there that are pretty good um, but aren't, you know, that are done. I think the other thing is, as it strikes me as, a, and I'm, I know enough about this, this to be dangerous, but I don't think we necessarily have really great metrics totally to fully measure the 
progress on SDG 16. We probably are getting there. And I suspect there probably is going to be more research needed to kind of not only track, but to improve the way in which we measure progress. Does that all ring true to you, Connor? Yeah, I think it, it rings broadly true. I mean, I think, you know, building off what you said, Dan, I think one, one thing that you often hear with governance and rule of law when you're talking about an international development perspective is it's very hard to measure it. It's very hard to produce easily quantifiable indicators to demonstrate that we've achieved progress or achieved the original goals of the project. And, um, you know, look, I think as compared to, say, vaccinating a thousand kids or, or feeding a thousand hungry people. Correct. Correct. And I think in the U.S. system, when you're thinking about accountability and transparency toward Congress, they want to see things that are easily quantifiable. And unfortunately, I think good governance and the rule of law is a little bit, it is more amorphous. That doesn't mean that people haven't attempted to create metrics that are out there, the World Bank's governance indicators, I mean, the doing business report, you know, core to that is strength of the legal system. So there are indicators out there. Um, but you're right. I do think that one thing for aid and others to think about is how do you strengthen that case because it is so critical. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Natsios, who I worked for and I think was the greatest uh, leader AID ever had, um, said that the drivers of global development are the private, formal private enterprise and good governance. And so this is a function completely a part of this. And so good governance agenda, there's, it's a larger conversation. But good governance is not something that kind of gets the pulls at the heartstrings, right? It's not a, it's not super hard. It's hard to take a photo of it. It's not photogenic, so it's hard to generate. Uh, if I can put it this way, sort of a, we have to make an intellectual case for it and continue to make an intellectual case for it, as opposed to sort of pulling out the heartstrings of, of legislators or or or, or Washington stakeholders. It, it's critical and it's important. Uh, but that also is the kind of topic too that can fall into kind of technocratic gobbledygook pretty quickly if we're not careful. So good. Let's uh, let's move to Valentina. Valentina, thanks for being here. I really appreciate you being here. You're the pr a private sector development specialist at the World Bank, but that you're sort of one of the keepers of the of one of the measures of of of, of rule of law and, and governance. Uh, you're not you're not part of the doing business. You don't you don't work on the doing business indicators that many of you in this room will know about, but you work on something that's sort of a first cousin of the doing business indicators, if you will. Tell us a little bit about that and how your work fits into the conversation about rule of law and how the World Bank Group thinks about rule of law. Thanks for being here. Sure. And um, um, I do cover doing business indicators as well, so I can offer insights on that. Okay, so you cover them as well. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes. So we, we can do both, uh, both, uh, both things. So indeed, what Karen was saying, it's not easy to measure rule of law. It's not easy to measure good governance. So uh, about five years ago, we started to brainstorm together with our donors, and actually the demand came from the outside to have some quantifiable measures of uh, good governance and rule of law. And uh, there are already many data sets that are out there that measure good governance and rule of law, but we were trying to come up with something that's very quantifiable, that's easier to measure, and it's global in nature. So it wasn't going to be a, a deep dive in particular countries, but we wanted to have a unique global data set that uh, captures transparent and inclusive rulemaking processes. And our mantra is uh, what gets measured uh, gets done. So we do believe in uh, numbers, uh, so that these numbers help countries and the global community to see uh, whether the progress has been made over time and 
how much or how little of that progress um, has been has been achieved. Um, Initially, we wanted to come up with corruption indicators, which is a very ambitious undertaking because how do you measure corruption? If you go out and ask uh, governments, do you take bribes or public officials, or are you corrupt, what are they going to say? Um, and if you ask the private sector, <laughs> sometimes. Um, and when you go out and ask individuals or private sector, do you give bribes? It's also it's a very sensitive issue because even if they do give bribes, they don't want to say about it. Um, the enterprise service, to some extent, they do have some indicators on um, corruption. Where there is a question that they ask, for example, you get a business license, do you, are you expected to give a bribe? So it's not like, do you give a bribe, but are you expected to do you think you would need to give a bribe? So it's, like a, it's a hypothetical question, but it does capture the reality on the ground to some extent. So with that in mind, we thought, okay, corruption, maybe it's too, uh, it's too ambitious and, and too sensitive to, to measure from our end. Let's see what we can do in terms of inclusive rulemaking processes. So by that, what we mean when governments craft new laws and regulations that impact everybody who lives in the country, that impact the business community, what are the processes that they follow? Uh, do they just draft these regulations and put them out there without consulting anybody and, uh, you know, disregarding the fact that some regulations can be even harmful uh, harmful to the business community or serve just the elites? Or is there a more transparent, inclusive rulemaking process where all the regu uh, relevant stakeholders are consulted, the people's voice is heard? Then there is a transparency to that process where the governments publish all the comments that are received on the proposed uh, or new rules and regulations and then do they respond back to these comments? and. Uh, in how many cases these comments are taken on board and actually they have the power to change the proposed uh, uh, rules and regulations. Then we look at the transparency at large. For example, we ask, is there a website or is there an archive or a physical place where you can go and actually review all the rules and regulations that are currently uh, applicable to businesses in your country? And if you disagree with any of the laws or, or regulations, or if you find any of them harmful, what are the mechanisms business community and stakeholders can use to actually challenge those regulations um, and have them uh, revised? We also look at regulatory impact assessments uh, because we think it's a good practice and uh, it's uh, according to OECD regulatory guidelines. All the Policymakers should do some kind of regulatory impact assessments to make sure that their regulations actually serve their purpose and have at least potentially good uh, externalities, good positive impact on the business community and uh, people at large, as opposed to let's come up with a new regulation, put it out there, and hope that it works without doing any cost-benefit analysis or any proper assessment. So with that in mind, we designed a questionnaire and. The first round was sent to the private sector. We sent mostly to lawyers as well as to civil society organizations to see what they think about the processes. And even though we received some good data, we realized that private sector doesn't necessarily know enough about the rulemaking processes on the top. And we figured out that there's no way we can circumvent actually going and asking the regulators about what they do when they craft new laws and, um, and regulations. 
But then it's also it's tricky because if you just go and ask uh, non-democratic governments of the world, are you transparent? Do you follow the rule of law? They would say yes, yes, yes. Um, so we needed to, we had to design the questions in a way so that we could check the answers. For example, the way we came up with the questions was if we say, do you make laws and regulations publicly accessible, yes or no? And if the answer is yes, please tell us where, what is the website, what is the place? And then our team would actually go out and check that information. So countries that score highly on these uh, questions really have data verified by our experts uh, in-house. Then other question when we ask, uh, that we asked, uh, do you do regulatory impact assessments? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, we ask uh, to share with us the latest regulatory impact assessment that has been done in the country. And then we review it and we see to make sure that indeed the right regulatory impact assessment was put in place for the country to receive a point on that question. And the same logic applied to all the other areas that we measure um, in the report. Now, uh, what is the objective of that? The objective of that, once we collect the data, and we've been doing this data collection exercise for the past uh, almost five years, we put it out for the general public to use. Uh, the data is on our website. So the governments and civil society, they look at the data and they see where the regulatory gaps are. And then every year we get approached by about 20 countries on this project, where they ask for advice, they ask us what can they do to improve, what can they do to reform um, their rule of, like, rule of law practices to make them more aligned with international best, uh, best practices and international best uh, reform advisory. So this is how we work, and then just to, to spend two minutes about, uh, on the Doing Business project. So the Doing Business project has been around for 17 years now. Um, it started uh, with the idea of let's measure how easy or difficult it is for companies to do business in countries around the world. Because the assumption is if the regulations are very cumbersome, if there are no clear rules for the games, it's very difficult for businesses to operate. There is a higher risk of having a big informal sector where companies don't pay like taxes, where they have to like navigate through the shadow economy. Um, and right now, the doing business expanded. We have 11, uh, 11 indicators, starting with the, what it takes to open a business. Then if you want to build a warehouse, like what it takes to obtain a building permit, if you want to connect this warehouse to electricity, how long would it take and how difficult is this process to connect to electricity grid? Then we have a set of legal indicators um, that we touched upon this morning. For example, how long does it take to resolve a bankruptcy case? If it's one to two years, like in any developed country with a strong rule of law, that's acceptable. If it takes 10 years, then we need to question why does it take so long? Uh, is it because of the weak legal institutions, or is it because the, the businesses are just being looted and uh, everything is stolen from the business and there is nothing left to reorganize? So then you can look at these underlying problems. We we'll look at uh, contract enforcement. Let's say if there, is, if there is a dispute between two private parties on a particular contract, how long would it take them to resolve the dispute? Again, in some countries it's five months, in other countries it's years, and we need to ask the questions as to why. And another relevant indicator is the protection of minority investors. If you're a minority investor and you invest your money in a particular company, how do you ensure that you are not discriminated against, that your voice has been heard, that directors don't do anything illegal, that there is en enough degree of transparency in the company where you're comfortable that your investment is not going to be used for some shady purposes? 
So these are the indicators uh, that we tackle within the doing business area that uh, help uh, private sector to flourish and uh, grow, which also has positive spillovers for the economies at large. And um, I'll stop here. Valentina, I just want to say that doing business indicators, I think, has been one of the great triumphs of global development. And I believe that the, it's probably the most visited, most looked at research work that the World Bank does every single year. I think that's true. I think they get probably multiples and multiples more of any study. There are some studies and papers at the World Bank. They did a study, I believe, a couple years ago that there were some studies that got no visits ever. So if you wrote a paper like no one visited the paper ever, not, not, not a lot of them, but there's a couple examples of some. But the World Bank's doing business indicators gets millions and millions of visits. And I think some of it's about the quality of the analytics. Some of it's about the um, period over time of measurement and some of the improvements in measurement. Some of it's about um, the ability of countries to work with the World Bank or work with USAID and others to say, how can I improve? Because there's an opportunity for improvement and measurable improvement. And frankly, some of it's about the force ranking and the force ranking of countries. Now, I know that's not something the World Bank likes to talk about, but I think it's really very, very important. If you're national, your founding mythology myth of your country or mythology says that the, the folks on the other side of the mountain are terrible and you're, they're 50 points ahead of you on the doing business indicators, it doesn't comport with your founding national mythology and it drives you crazy. And so I think it's a spur for change. And I think we sometimes underestimate national rivalries and petty national rivalries or real ones, et cetera. And so I think th this sort of, um, I think it's, it's, it's misunderstood and often overlooked, but I think it really matters. And so I think the, 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 to the extent that the World Bank Group can force rank countries, and I know there's been some instances of other sorts of intellectual products the World Bank is doing, where the management has said that the amount of headache involved with force ranking countries, because the amount of crap, and I think that's the think tank term for it, that the management gets every year. So people hate, some countries hate where they show up. And so from time to time, there have been attempts to kneecap, kill, or outsource the doing business indicators because there are shareholders who don't like it. And there have been some staff members who don't necessarily like it either. Either at my view is out of professional jealousy or just sort of worldview, you know, you know kind of a, an antiquated worldview or, or something. So I just think what you're doing is incredibly important. And the more we can force rank countries, the better. I think it's all good to have the, the having robust analytics, but I actually think the spur is if I'm country X and I can compare myself to country Y, that actually does matter. I also think things like the kinds of data that you're talking about, whether it's say, where I think it was Ethiopia um, 10 or 15 years ago, if you wanted to register a company, you had to place an ad in the, the one newspaper. There was one newspaper, and it was owned by the president's brother, and it was like $40,000 or something like this, and the country next door, you didn't have to place, you didn't have to pay $40,000 to register a formal company. You know, the, these sorts of things matter. So these sorts of questions you're asking about, like why does it take two years to resolve in country X, and why in country Y does it take four weeks? Well, I think that's a legitimate, those are legitimate questions, and to the extent that we can say, well, why does, you know, country X and country Y, I, I, and, and, and to the extent that you throw in a little national rivalry, I think it matters and it helps. Now, I know you can't say that, but I can. So, um, so anyways, Valentin, I really appreciate you being here. 
Um, could you just spend one minute, not on any, anything I've just said, but could you just spend a minute, Valentini, uh, Valentini, on how does your work interface with SDG 16 in terms of, because I think a lot of the metrics and a lot of the, one of the great public goods that the World Bank provides is data like this and analytics and research. I'm assuming you're getting phone calls or your group is getting phone calls saying, hey, can you help us track progress on SDG 16 or pieces of it? Could you just comment a little bit on that, please? Sure, so specifically on SDG 16, the most relevant indicator is being developed at the moment, and that's the public procurement indicator. Because uh, public procurement speaks a lot to the rule of law in a country, and um, to our knowledge, there isn't right now a global data set um, that measures public procurement from a standpoint of the private sector in, uh, in different countries. The power of, of doing business is uh, truth and ranking, of course, but also the uh, due to the fact that we give the voice to the private sector. For example, if um, the governments they come to us a lot, and uh, we interact almost with uh, every uh, every government around the world. And the governments they come and praise us, they come and they hate us, um, they challenge our data. They say, "Well, we're punishing our country because our you know, investors look at our data, and our data is not so good, and we disagree with this data." So we listen to the voice of the government, but we overrun this voice with the private sector. So, for example, if a government comes to us and says that uh, in our country it should take only five days to open a business and it's by law, here is the law. And then we talk to the private sector and the private sector says, well, actually it takes five weeks because of X, Y, and Z, because yes, by law it's five days, but we need to do all this bureaucracy aside, we do count five weeks. Um, and with the public procurement indicator, the case study, we apply to all the countries because our data should be comp comparable in nature. So we use case studies for all the indicator. And in public procurement, our case study is, uh, we assume that the government wants to pave a road, like a highway, let's say, and they need to hire a company to do that. And we, for this indicator, we monitor the whole process. Is there a tender? How does it work? Is it transparent? Who can participate in this tender? How long would it take for the government to make a decision? Is this decision transparent? How much a company needs to put down in order to qualify for the contract? How long would it take for the government to actually issue the contract? What are the processes put in place to make sure that everything is fair and transparent and there is no cronyism involved in the process? And when this indicator, we collect data from the lawyers, from the companies, from the procuring entity. So it's a very complex indicator. It's not easy to collect the data, but we will be showcasing it this year. And we hope that by October, the data, the first round of data will be made publicly available through the Doing Business website. And we'll see how much heat uh, we'll get for that. I love and then, it. Uh, we want to host you here when you roll it out. Perfect. And, um, and then the idea is that next year it will be part of the ranking and it will be a part of the pillars of the Doing Business Report. I, sorry, I just cannot help myself. Now, how many people here are going to go out and march in the street on behalf of more transparent public procurement? I don't... Right. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. But you guys get the... You know, you guys... Okay. But let's agree that this kind of stuff is kind of eye-glazing put you to sleep, doesn't get the heart pumping kinds of stuff as compared to say, I'm gonna vaccinate kids or I'm gonna feed hungry people. This is real wonky, real um, hard to motivate politicians kind of stuff. 
but I would argue that it's as important as feeding kids, and it's as important as uh, vaccinating children, um, but it's hard to make this as compelling. It's hard to pick a, how do you make a picture of public procurement, you know, that's a compelling picture of, so I actually think, but something like, Valentin, I think something like 50, 20 to 30% of the GMP of a country goes through the hands of public procurement officials. I think that's about right, more, more or less, right? That's pretty, that's pretty, pretty good for, pretty good on, for a second cup of, on my second cup of coffee. But I'd say so it's a very high percentage of developing countries' GMPs goes through the hands of public procurement officials. Um, we've also had a lot of energy in the last five or so years on issues around should countries buy stuff at the lowest bid or should countries buy stuff on what's called life cycle cost or quality indicators? Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that because, well, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we told developing countries, buy stuff on the lowest bid. It's simpler, it's transparent, it's easy to measure. Well, I'm speaking and putting on Team America hat on for a second. About 10 or 15 years ago, the Chinese started winning all the low bids. Now, some of it could be subsidized, some of it could be they weren't playing by the Marquia Queensberry rules, uh, if you know what I'm saying, on certain things. So now, but some of it is they did great work. Some of it was they did cheap work cheaper than us. So to, there was a thinking that mm, maybe we ought to think differently. So some of it was, so this issue of low bid and procurement is a really, there's, there's all sorts of geostrategic issues involved in it. There's issues of trade involved in this. There's issues of governance and procurement and how we also bring new players in. If, if the three or four crony companies in a country keep winning all the bids, that's not so good, and how do we open it up? So public sector procurement may be sort of a, first a snoozer of a topic, and I only saw five hands go up saying they'd march in the streets for better public procurement, and the other 100 of you didn't. So, um, but I would make the case that these sorts of metrics are really quite important if we want to see the sort of changes, whether you know societal changes happen, it's it's really quite important, and it gets quite complicated quite quickly. So I'm really interested in that. I commit now to hosting something either around the annual meetings or just after. I'll host something here at CSS because I think it's very important that we share that information because that's it's critically important. And like I said, it, if you first hear it in the elevator, you're like, oh, what a snoozer. I think I'll skip it. But, but once you understand what the stakes are, you understand how centrally important this is. So thanks for working on that and thanks for doing that, Valentina. Thank you. Okay, so Andrew, you're one of the guys who raised his hand saying you would march in the streets for public procurement. You get a gold star for that. But Andrew, I think, runs one of the most interesting organizations in Washington. He's the executive director of the Center for International Enterprise. It's International Private Enterprise, which is affiliated with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, but is, is part of the National Endowment for Democracy family, the NED family, and it's sort of the private, the intersection of sort of the private sector and good governance and democracy. Or, um, and you guys have been at it for 30 years, and you've been with SIPE for more than 20, 24 almost, right? Yeah. So, so this isn't your first rodeo on this. So if I say to you, SDG 16, talk about SDG 16, talk about the rule of law, and how, does the, how do those issues come across your radar screen in your day job? Thanks. 
Um, thank you, Dan. And I, I think the last time I was here, I was here with the other uh, institute heads, and we agreed that Sipe was the boring institute. Uh, I, I don't think so. I'm going to raise my <laughs> hand and say I don't think you're boring. We're institute. proud to be boring. You're proud to be dealing with the boring issues because I agree with you. I think these are some of the more vital issues that just tend to fly under the radar. And I'll throw another one out there: state-owned enterprise governance, uh, which is another place where where we yeah. see this breakdown. Uh, don't make it a Netflix night. State-owned <laughs> enterprise <laughs> governance. Great. Uh, SDG 16, uh, you know, is, is, is near and dear to our heart at SIPE. In fact, when we sort of looked through all the SDGs and, and we're trying to figure out where we fit into the SDG framework, there are a few out there that, that had to do with empowerment of, 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 of marginalized groups and other things that, that, that uh, meant something to us. But uh, SDG 16, and in particular 16.5 through 16.9, if you really want to get technical on it. Oh, God, we're on me. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, what I'd like to do uh, is, is kind of talk a little bit to one of the points you made uh, in your opening remarks, uh, Dan, and that's to talk a little bit about the evolving private sector perspectives as to why SDG 16 is important. And as Dan said, I've been in this business for a long time, and my first uh, in, um, iteration, I was our program officer for Central and Eastern Europe way back in the, in the early 90s. And I was bouncing around the region trying to meet with, with members of civil society and the business community and others. And um, I would go into the offices of um, multinational corporations, the rep offices out in the field, and I would try to raise money from them and try to convince them that we were worth supporting. And I would talk to them about what we did, and I'd say, well, well, you know, we talk about the rule of law, the institutional environment, fighting corruption, and they're like, God, that's so important here. That's, we're, we're behind you 100%, but please don't ask us to say anything in public about it, because we're exposed, and we don't want to <laughs> expose our, our opportunities here to government pushback. Well, the good news is, I think, that the rule of law movement has progressed to such a point that it's more difficult now to push back against companies, but also I think multinationals in particular are starting to understand how the rule of law is affecting their ability to compete globally. And that I think is due not only to uh, the importance and the rise of rule of law, but the rise of competition from, from countries and companies that do not feel constrained by uh, global standards of compliance. Uh, and I think we can all uh, look at, at this, and I'll get into it a little bit further uh, in a minute. I would also say we need to make a distinction here between global companies and local firms. So there is a, there is a, a cross-section of multinationals that are very good on SDGs, that are saying all the right things. But I would posit, because occasionally I get to swim in those waters, that you're hearing that out of people from headquarters in New York but you may not be hearing it from the field reps because the message isn't getting down through the corporation. But more importantly, the local private sector, although they live these problems on a day-to-day -day basis, still lack the tools and the awareness uh, and are more exposed in terms of their, their vulnerabilities. Uh, so we really still need to focus on, on bringing the local private sector along. Um, what do you need to make SDG 16 um, work? I would say you need two elements to begin with. You need political will at the country level, and then you need a grassroots civil society um, that's willing to take on an education and a watchdog role. And I think you need strategies that are incremental in their approach. 
one of the things I think we learned in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet states during the transition was that you couldn't go in and just, as we heard earlier, transplant a system down. When you design systems of rule of law, I think you really have to respect two things. You have to respect the ability of local governments to actually implement the laws that are in place, and Valentina and the Doing Business Indicators, I think, have gotten a lot better at looking at that implementation gap than, than it's in its early uh, in, um, incarnations. But you also have to look at the ability of the private sector to comply with regulation. If you don't have uh, laws and regulations and rule of law that really sort of slowly raise the playing field, um, you, you've got more of a recipe for corruption uh, than anything else, because people are going to look for the most expedient way to, to avoid uh, unworkable situations. More recently, and as I've alluded to it, and I think um, um, Matt laid it out in a much more academic way uh, and, and eloquent way than I can, we've been looking at this issue of what we call corrosive capital. Uh, and we've been looking at it from the site perspective, and what is the effect of capital flows, both private and state capital flows, from authoritarian nations on the rule of law in emerging markets. Um, we're of the opinion that you will not slow the flow of these capital um, flows, um, nor should we desire to slow the flow of capital flows. I think it's wonderful that China wants to play a role in global development. But we have to understand that, that um, these are following different sets of rules and values from us. And what we need to be focusing on is twofold. One is raising the standards of those flows themselves uh, and the requirements we put on those. But more importantly, we need to invest in the rule of law in countries that are receiving those funds. What we understand, for instance, about Chinese capital, whether, whether it's private or public, is that it will obey the laws in the countries it goes into. So if you're listing on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, if you're Jack Ma, you are going through disclosure. Now we can debate the quality of disclosure that you're getting from a Chinese firm, but they will obey local laws. Where local laws are weak, they're not going to feel constrained by international standards, which is something a Western company would feel. A Western company ultimately has to comply with, it, with laws, but it also has to comply with the wishes of its customers when it comes to labor standards, environmental standards, et cetera, et cetera. Public procurement gets abused in these situations when we see big state projects coming in. So again, that's, that's why it's important. And so we've been examining, uh, because our partners have been asking us to examine these things, how we can address the issue of capital flows. And we chose the term corrosive capital very carefully, because what we wanted to say is that we have to accept that different types of capital from different types of authoritarian states had different levels of acidity. So we can look at, say, a Turkish businessman who's building a hotel on the Black Sea somewhere, and he's throwing a bribe out here or there. To, to get the property license or whatever. Yeah, okay, you know, that's not, that's not existential to a country. But then if we look at, say, Russian capital and how it's being used in the Balkans, and in more particular, if you really want to get to the rule of law, let's talk about elections, how Russian capital has been manipulated and used to affect the outcomes of elections in the Balkans, and the one I'll point to is the referendum over North Macedonia's name. So if we look at how that, that referendum was going to take place, it, if there was a low turnout on the referendum, it would become null and void. What did we see? Well, we know the, we know the patterns of Russian ownership uh, in the region are concentrated in media, energy, and sports teams. Why sports teams? Balkan politics is about street action. When you need street action, who do you turn to first? 
football hooligans. And, and, you know, you might not believe me, but if you look at what happened in Skopje in the run-up to the, to the Macedonian referendum, what did we see? We saw Russian-owned media coming out with a boycott message, and we saw street demonstrations in the square outside the parliament. But the people who were leading those street demonstrations were actually football supporters from Thessaloniki in Greece from a Russian-owned team. So that's a case where you have highly acidic, corrosive use. Most of this stuff on rule of law is falling somewhere in the middle. It's a bad procurement in Ethiopia. Uh, it's it's building a railroad in Kenya without the appropriate environmental inspections, et cetera. So how are we going to address this? At the local level, we need to understand the nature of how these uh, investments go into a country and what, what loopholes they exploit. We need to identify the patterns of how they do that and uh, the policy responses, and then we have to engage with both the governments and civil society to come up with solutions that will force rule of law on the school of capital. At the global level, and we're very big on thinking globally and acting locally here, I think we in the United States need to take a look at our own national security strategies. And we need to take a look at the way we look at our own values of democracy uh, and rule of law and we need to make sure that when we are looking at the three Ds of development, defense, and diplomacy, we're adding a fourth D of democracy into that formula because if we are practicing these things without a sense of where we are, we're going into this global battle of values uh, unprepared. And finally, we need to up our game in places of global governance, places like the WTO, uh, where we're getting ready for a renegotiation. We've got to make sure that the U.S. Trade Representative is going in there with a strong values um, position. We need to look at the U.N. And we need to demand more from institutions that set standards such as the OECD. Uh, because it's those global standards that mean a lot to people acting on the local scene. So I've got a couple of questions and I want to open it up. But I've, uh, so if if you all believe that rule of law is important and it's critical for e economic growth, what is this group's answer to the issue of China? How do, why does China do so well? That's kind of one question. You, you don't have to answer both these, but you can pick one. And the other question for this group is, okay, if you're the head of AID, what more could or should you be doing as the head of AID in this issue of, of uh, rule of law and good governance. So why don't I start, um, Andrew, why don't I start with you? Okay. Um, on China, I think, you know, we always had this debate on whether China was a market economy or not and whether the rule of law, I think that got settled yesterday at the WTO when China announced it was no longer going to contest its market economy status. Uh, so, uh, but I think why does China work? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why China works. Uh, one is uh, the investment uh, and, and just macroeconomic opportunity. Uh, that exists in the country. It's a large marketplace. It was underutilized. There was a lot of spare growth to happen in the country, and it happened. But I will say, um, you know, there's a lot of debate out there. Frank Fukuyama is one of those that, that, that's out there on this, uh, talking about the importance of governance. Uh, and I would say Chinese governance, uh, and we need to distinguish this, Chinese governance is ruled by law, not rule of law. Uh, but it's predictable. Uh, Companies that went into China could at least predict what the operating environment was, and they would stomach it because the market was so huge. They were willing to take losses in terms of intellectual property, uh, control over the operation, et cetera, et cetera, because the market was so large. I think now you're starting to see those strains appear 
uh, in the, the relationship between China and Western firms. And I think China is starting to hit a wall uh, in terms of, of, of that, that uh, ultimate contradiction between rule of law and, and, and market. Uh, if I was at USAID, um, I think I would go back. I would I'd cast my mind back 10 or 12 years and look at how I was running my DRG operations back then, uh, which had considerable... That's under the Nazios era. The Nazios era. Um, but with, with one caveat, um, I think the, the, um, the problem that we've had with USAID in terms of DRG uh, is that DRG um, got subsumed into everything AID did. So there was a decision to say all AID programs will have a rule of law component. But I think when you do that, you lose your focus. Uh, and I think you lose your ability to, to, to do things. And frankly, you lose funding. And a lot of money that was earmarked for DRG went off in different directions because of different priorities within USAID. I think you need to refocus on the role of democracy, again, with, with international security policy, but then to see how that trickles down within um, USAID itself. Uh, I think USAID has made great strides, though, in linking economic reform and uh, good governance in the last few years, um, but I think it can do more to set the tone and more to work with its missions in the field uh, to put that into play. Great, thanks. So Valentina, pick one, and Connor, pick one, Matt, pick one. Valentina, go ahead. Okay. Uh, can I pick two, just do it very quickly? Okay. So first of all, just to mention that um, the Global Indicators of Regulatory Governance is funded largely by USAID. So that's an example of what uh, can be done to... So keep funding it. Keep funding, funding it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, last year, the funding was on hold because, again, the, we weren't clear what the priorities would be and like what the strategy going forward was going to be. But then like, the, the past year, we were approached again with a very generous contribution to the project. So actually, we're very grateful to USAID for that. And it's a perfect example what can be done to to provide the data for the people to use uh, and to act upon. Um, the business is independently funded. It's funded by the World Bank, but like the, the other projects related to good governance um, do have USAID money. And on China, on China, we have an interesting story in doing business. China was one of the most avid critics of doing business since its inception and uh, to the point where we would be presenting on doing business to a large audience and Chinese delegation would stand up and protest and um, ask to be removed from the doing business report. They said, if you look, you know, don't rank us, this is hurting our economy, our ranking is not good enough. Uh, but everybody in the world thinks that we are doing fantastically in terms of economic indicators uh, so like then remove us from the ranking so of course we didn't remove china from the ranking we kept the country and we stood by our data and now it's a very different shift in chinese approach to doing business they actually instead of working against us in the past two years they started working with us and they've invited us to come to the country for like now two consecutive years where the team members went and talked to the private sector on the ground talked to the government and the government wanted to learn what they can do and what they can learn from other countries in order to improve on the doing business indicators. So from what we observe, there is a political will to at least appear good in terms of numbers on the, on the global spectrum and to improve the business climate to advance on the, on the doing business indicators. So, so the message with China is play the long game. After 15 years, they, they, they came around. That's good. Okay. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, 
I would just answer on USAID. I think Andrew's right. I think this this move rule of law out from just being integrated across all programs and to really think of it as a separate thing. I, I would say, though, I think we, if you follow this, I think you, you do face a challenge here in that um, governance, democracy, these programs have traditionally not been one of the larger pools of funding um, for USAID and for the other U.S. development agencies. Um, it's certainly not the same size as um, Global Health or some of the other large um, uh, basic human needs programs. Like I said, who's going to go launch in a parade? Who's going to write in a parade for public procurement? Andrew Nancios will probably lead that parade, Dan, um, with all due respect. Um, but. Uh, but I would say this, I mean, I think if you look at where the money is being spent, it's being spent in countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, Ukraine, Mexico, Colombia. I mean, these are, these are sort of large geopolitical uh, programs for the United States, and that's where that money is largely concentrated. On other countries like Ghana or Nigeria or Kenya or Tanzania, there's relatively little money being spent. And again, it's not, most of these programs are not hugely expensive. Um, they are not, it's not like delivering ARVs to a large population. Um, the, the, the money the, is not huge, but it's still prioritizing it. And I think that's, that's an area where USAID could still do a whole lot more is to really prioritize good governance, democratic governance, rule of law, um, and to work, work with their constituents in Congress and elsewhere to build that support that they need. Thank you. Um, As I worked at uh, DRG in the last year of the Obama administration under the able leadership of Gail Smith and with my colleague Sarah Logan, who's in the audience here, I'll happily take on that question uh, and, and make two points. First is, uh, in the last year of the Obama administration, we were moving aggressively in two directions that are important to this discussion. One is to adopt new indicators and metrics using, for example, the World Bank's governance metrics as a way of affirmatively um, stating the goals of building a rule of law or fighting corruption so that people understood there would be a result from doing that, including better economic competition. Uh, procurement leading to better delivery of government mm. services and access to justice. So we were shifting in that sense. We we're also looking at this as a cross-sectoral issue. Uh, we, wanted, we wanted to have anti-corruption rule of law built into all sectors work, including the health sector, educational sector, as a, as a strategic issue. Uh, now, however, the issue is a bit different, Dan, and that is, and so my advice to Mark Green would be this. Um, this is not a development issue. Uh, uh, alone. This is a national security issue. Mm -hmm. And so if you're Mark Green right now, you have to actually convene a principals meeting on a regular basis to discuss how we are going to engage more effectively in lawfare uh, to um, be able to neutralize threats to the rule of law around the world, to build constituencies in support of the rule of law around the world, and um, do this not only as a matter of development using all the fine tools that have been discussed here, including private sector champions, but also as a matter of foreign policy. Uh, and so, you know, in, it goes back to this point of um, in, in a given country, um, the formation of a rule of law constituency is a very tricky uh, process which requires at its root 
trust and confidence that if they change their behavior um, at, at, at elite levels as well as civil society levels, they will be rewarded for changing their behavior. Um, and by that I mean respecting the law, um, using the courts uh, as, op as opposed to abusing the courts, um, protecting private property instead of stealing private property. All those behavior changes need to take place um, uh, based on a number of drivers, and then the tools become useful. That's great, thank you. Okay, you've all been very patient. I have people I wanna call on, I'm, uh, but I, I'd like to also give a chance for folks to raise their hands. Let's see some hands. Okay, okay, good, good, good. I also need, I wanna hear from my friend from Team AID, I wanna hear from Steve Hadley, I wanna hear from Stuart Kerr, and I wanna hear from this gentleman and this woman here. So let me start with these two folks with their hands up. This woman here with the glasses and the gentleman here, and then I wanna hear from the three of them, Stuart, Steve, and my friend from Team AID, yep. Thank you, my name is Prosper. Uh, my question is, uh, I agree with everything that you've said about uh, promoting rule of law. But as an outsider looking at how the US government has been working and how especially our foreign policy, it se there seems to be uh, a failure to balance our strategic interests with the promotion of the rule of law. At least in the way we incentivize like these the, the different countries. What, what, what is the problem? Because it seems, it seems that everyone really wants this and the, the Department of State wants this, but we seem to be supporting uh, leaders who do not uh, uphold the rule of law. Is it, do we, how much leverage do we have? Is it because we don't have that much leverage? What's the problem? Thank okay, you. Thank you. This, this woman here. Uh, hello, I'm Stacy Shamber from the International Civil Society Action Network. Thank you very much for your comments today. Um, I really appreciated the understanding of rule of law and having the, the people, civil society, hold their governments accountable. Um, uh, we think this is very critical as we support 60 civil society organizations globally, both through a multi-donor fund as well as with technical support. And my question really is, um, from your perspective, what do you see as um, the best way to enhance the relationship between civil society and the private sector as uh, we come together and work on SDG 16? Thank you. Okay, with, with apologies, this is more a, a comment or two, but they'll be quick, I promise. Uh, Stuart, I'm at a big law firm now, but I spent the last 35 years working almost exclusively rule of law, U.S. government running NGOs doing this. Um, great program, great panel. We could talk hours about any one of these sub subjects, but won't. Um, Connor raised the issue of how to maybe more normalize rule of law throughout projects, throughout donors. Uh, one thing I think any of us who've worked on large donor-funded projects know that any project gets run through the ringer of social and gender assessment, environmental assessment, and so forth. I don't think, you know, maybe AID has rushed ahead in the last couple of years, but to really look at and any, any given larger project, I mean, you can call it rule of law, you can call it governance, you can focus just on anti-corruption or something, but looking at the risks, looking at was it, was it developed in a, uh, an inclusive way, as Valentina was saying, I just think there's, there's, there's reason without too much more uh, addition of bureaucracy. There, there are opportunities to, if, if it becomes more normalized, that projects get looked at this by donors. 
it'll become something that people do. Uh, the other problem, I, I love the, uh, the uh, chlorine pills, and I, I, will, I will use that and now re re replace my why you don't drink, just drill a borehole by the U.S. military example. Um, but to the point of uh, getting th uh, things done within the regular existing institutions, I think in some ways we would benefit by viewing an institution as often a number of slices. For example, in working at, at courts, there were a number of sort of court reform projects where the main courts themselves, very difficult to deal with, but a country may want to, in part because pushed by World Bank or other reasons, develop or expand a commercial court. Uh, something a little new, but attached to the existing institution. Uh, in some cases, these have worked rather well. Uh, they provide examples, at least within the system, of something that's a little separate, but yet a part, hopefully inspiring to other parts of the system. I'll stop there. Hi, thank you. Um, I would also add a comment, and this one, uh, in the in the uh, set of recommendations to AID, uh, around 2011, there were five or six full-time commercial lawyers working on the program side within USAID. Today, there's one, and that person is not working on commercial law per se, but is working on gender issues, which are relevant too. But um, if USAID is to take this issue seriously, at least on the economic governance side, I think they look, need to look at personnel policy and the kinds of people who, who they're hiring. Okay. Steve, are you available, Steve? Because we, yeah. <laughs> will you come back? <laughs> okay, good. Okay, Team AID, please. Here's the microphone behind, to your, there you go. Okay, hi, I'm Sarah Logan, I'm with USAID. So I'd like to just sort of follow up on Matthew's point about um, rule of law as a national security issue, um, and also Andrew's point about corrosive capital. And I think that, you know, it used to be back in the old days we thought democracies wouldn't fight democracies, and now we've seen this rise, I would say, in what you call corrosive capital, corruption, um, and also illicit um, activity and transactions, which has, I would say, eroded the rule of law in, in many places around the world. So as we look at rule of law assistance, um, I take to heart that we should certainly um, weigh up our efforts, and I think using a national security lens is a good way to approach that. However, with the caveat um, that we need to focus on a lot of the principles that are included in the SDG 16, access to justice, the relationship between citizens and the government, inclusive, participatory, accountable governance, um, and not just focus on enforcement. I think it's easy to say um, how many bad, bad guys did we catch. I think it would be more useful to look at um, did we help to create an institution that is capable of prosecuting a corrupt official. So, and that that, that would be a lasting impact rather than just counting we were able to prosecute this one particular person. Excellent, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna give each of you a chance. You don't have to answer all the, com respond to all the comments or any questions, but I would like, I'm hoping each of you will cover at least one, respond to at least one of the comments. Why don't I start with Prosper's, I'll take this on myself. I think we're return I think from 1945 to 1990 we were in a period of great power competition in the United States and we had to make we had to make choices not just based on our values which we do we do have values but I also think we had to make hard choices based on a mixture of our interests and our values 
I'd like to think that from sort of 1990 to about 2015, we sort of were in a golden, uh, uh, I won't call it a golden age of development, but in some ways you could say the 1990-2015 was sort of a golden age of development where sort of there were national interests and national security interests, but they weren't as preponderant perhaps as they had been before 1990. And so the kind of, you know, though we did make also complicated choices during that period too. I think we're returning to a period of great power competition, and I think that issues of our values, including things like rule of law and good governance, are going to be looked at in the context of other priorities as well, and sometimes it's going to come out on top, and sometimes it's not going to come out on top, and so I think that that's, I think, the simple answer, unfortunately, to your question. So, Matt, I'll let you... I will, um, a couple points. First, um, we've had several references this morning to how we use the terminology and how, to Sarah's uh, very excellent observation, we create local demand and, and um, civil society-based institutions, citizen-based justice uh, in, in and around the world. And, and that is um, an extremely important um, objective because that is what makes this all sustainable. And so um, it may be that the rule of law itself is the wrong term, but I don't think we should be too troubled by whether we're bringing something to other countries or they're bringing something locally, organically up themselves um, that is, is called the rule of law because the essence of it is justice. The essence, the essence of what we're trying to deliver is access to justice. And the, and the way to do that is to create institutions that are lo based on local values, that are driven by a local sense of justice, and that will, will be sustainable over time. But they will look a lot like what we've created here. Because, I mean, you don't, you don't have to go too far. This is a, there's cross-cultural buy-in for justice. Um, there's a whole, sort of period of literature known as uh, Mirrors to Prince's Literature. It was Machiavelli was the, one of the most famous writers of this genre, but there are Muslim and, and, and Chinese writers of this genre. And they all gave advice to princes which boiled down to, if you want to be loved and feared, and you want to keep your power, you, you, you do have to do things that may be difficult at times, but you always have to be fair. And so that, that is something, that notion of fairness and justice is challenged in today's environment of globalization. So I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to uh, express here, Dan, is that um, on top of all of this, we need to look at the normative question. What is it that we're trying to do to create and strengthen the role of the individual, the role of human rights, in a globalized world, where we have all these other problems, the decline of democracy, the rise of authoritarianism and kleptocracy as a sort of twin phenomenon, and the export of a form of just a form of law, which is anything but neutral, which is designed to repress people at home, but also uh, create institutions abroad which will erode the uh, uh, commitment to the rule of law abroad. Great. Thank you.
Connor. Uh, yeah, very just very quickly, I think, uh, Stephen, that's a great point on the number of uh, commercial lawyers who are working at uh, aid. I think that goes exactly to the heart of what I've been, what I've tried to bring up, which is where are we putting our people time and money? And if there were five or six then and now there's one, you know, we're clearly it's not important. Um, and so I really do think on, in particular on this side, we really do need to be looking at do we have the right personnel? Um, second thing, um, you know, I think Stuart, I think absolutely right. There are sometimes the need to create something new like a commercial court if it doesn't exist before. Um, I guess, you know, what I, my, my sort of broader point is I think we should just always be very attuned to whatever the local systems are, and I think you agree with me. It's, um, you know, where necessary, there probably will be the, a need to create something new to address a problem that hasn't been addressed in the past. But I think we should just always be mindful of, you know, are we circumventing the existing system in the pursuit of our own objectives or because we just see it as too challenging. It shouldn't always be. These are challenging issues. We why are they challenging? Let's let's go at it. So, that's all. Okay, Valentina. Um, on the question of how to enhance the relationship between the civil societies and the private sector, I guess there are many avenues that uh, can be taken to achieve that, and it really depends on what we see in this realm of doing business. It really depends on the political structure and um, the type of governance of a particular country. So it can be that uh, the government itself uh, facilitates this kind of interaction and creates a platform for the civil societies in the private sector to get together and then hear to the voice of uh, civil society in the private sector to try and address their grievances through uh, policy implementation. In a country like uh, Russia, for example, there is a separate agency for strategic initiatives that's kind of like separate from the government, even though not entirely, but at least like they try to be separate and bring together private sector and civil society organizations to have this like, open discussion forum to, to, get, uh, to have their voices heard. Um, and then in other countries, like in the EU, uh, recently in Malta, in the, uh, an example can be Malta, where uh, we worked on trade issues and the government again itself brought civil society organizations and private sector to discuss the issues with international trade and how the processes could be improved going forward. Okay, Andrew. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll comment on the civil society private sector relations uh, question as well. Um, I'm not as optimistic about the, the role of government uh, in being a convener because I think in a lot of countries there's a, a basic adversarial relationship between civil society uh, and government, the private sector and government, uh, and it, the government might not have the credibility to do that. However, I think the opportunity that is in place um, comes as a result of the SDGs themselves. Uh, and it is the, the notion that the private sector uh, has a significant role to play in global development and the fact that the, the, the private sector is trying to figure out uh, if it's going to be asked to do so much, how does it partner with other stakeholders in government and civil society? Um, but again, that adversarial relationship uh, exists between the two bodies, um, and it's something I think both sides need to figure out how to overcome. Uh, there's a basic issue of trust here, but there's also a basic issue of structure. Uh, you know, civil society has viewed itself uh, as a watchdog of the private sector, as something of an adversary, and, and the private sector has always viewed civil society with suspicion and, and questioning its legitimacy to even, even hold things. So neither side has really developed those tools over time to, to do this. I think that's changing. 
and I think there are bodies that are non-governmental bodies that are starting to convene civil society and the private sector, I think of the World Economic Forum, for instance, the International Chamber is starting to do things along these lines as well, um, to try and start dialogues between groups. Um, and I think within the framework of the SDGs where people can debate what does an SDG for governance look like and what does that mean in real time and perhaps have a common set of goals to work towards might help build that framework for better civil society, private sector uh, cooperation. All right, let's end it here. Please join me in thanking the panel.